Hey there, welcome back to the Will and Rob Show. It is great to be with y'all. My name is Robert, Director of Communications for Ministry of State, and here with me, as always, my very good friend and colleague, Will. Will, you are a ministry associate with Ministry of State. Will, how's everything going? Thanks you for including that. Uh, yeah, I had to make sure I, I slip it in. Yeah, that's good. That's very important. It's very essential for people. That people don't want to, I don't want, honestly, my big concern is I don't want people to think that I got demoted or something because, because you know, the internet's full of a lot of gossip and misinformation. And if that made its way through the interwebs and, and out there into the other, I don't know if there's any way to rein that in before every episode, I could subtly demote your title. Every episode will associate assistant to the associate uh, minister of ministry to state. And then eventually you become an intern and then uh, yeah, we could do that. No, we, we won't do that. Okay. Well, I appreciate you backing off from that, uh, but it, <laughs> it is disconcerting to know what's going on in your head at any given time of how you might conspire against a friend, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, <laughs> it is um, getting closer to Christmas. We're in our third week of Advent, which is uh, the encouragement to take joy and rejoice, which um, I mean, just, this isn't the point of our podcast that we want to talk about, but it is pretty awesome that we serve a God who says, uh, be joyful that, that he is a God who wants for us to rejoice, to be glad and happy, to, um, savor the abundance of the good, to live a res- resurrection life. I mean, um, it's pretty remarkable. I, 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 and I think maybe as Christians, uh, early on, like an apologetic witness note, I, I don't know if many people think of God in that way who aren't Christians, um, as, as the God who commands rejoicing. And so it's a good opportunity for us to tell people why we say Merry Christmas. Um, and this week we have our ministry state Christmas party teaming up with faith and law on the Hill at the yard six to eight February. No. (laughs) Wow. Uh, six to eight December, uh, 15th. So it's going to be a good yeah, time. Yeah, I'm excited for it. That'll be a good time. What are you up to these days? Oh, man. I'm in my last week of the fall semester. Uh-huh. So I've got to take a Christian ethics final. I've got to take a Hebrew final. And then I've got to write a 1800 to 2200 word paper on justification. So not all that much going on in my life right now. Um, I don't. I was actually going to say I don't miss those days. Um, here's the deal. Those days are great. If you aren't working and don't also have a, fa- a family, the undergrad <laughs> days of that are, are very different. It's a very different world. Um, but yeah, it's a lot. I, f- I feel like if I was, uh, like maybe not married or, you know, kind of living in a bachelor pad situation, my ethics Up. final would be studying for it would be really fun because it would sort of be like, you know, those late night dorm room conversations. I'm going to guess that Kirsten is out of the house today. <laughs> yeah do be, i gotta be careful when i say that out loud um but uh actually you know christian ethics taking christian ethics in the situation that i'm in right now has provided me a lot of opportunity to practice ethics um because uh, there are a lot of days where i don't want to um uh love s- sacrificially as i am commanded to uh there are days i want to be selfish and go- be jealous of my time and I am called to do otherwise, uh, which is actually a pretty good segue into what we wanted to talk about today. Did you see how I did that just seamlessly? I, I almost feel like my head's spinning right after, now. I, after 85 episodes of this, you just get into a rhythm. 
Oh, I thought it was so smooth, so quick that I I needed to just I'm I am just spinning right now. Fabulous, fabulous segue. Smooth um, as molasses. Thank you, sir. Uh, but yeah, today we wanted to talk about um, love, uh, the uh, command of love, the ethic of love uh, in scripture, uh, and in particular within the context of neighbor love uh, and the parable of the good Samaritan. And go ahead. And we want to ask, what is it good for? We're not going that route, I'm guessing. We're going to stick no. with the. Yeah, we're going to stick with we're going to stick with scripture. Ah. Okay, okay. Although so many so many great theologians uh, in rock and roll music throughout the years have given us a lot of great definitions and explications of love that might get tied in. Who knows? We'll see. Well, from what I've heard, uh, based on a recent documentary, that's all that you need. Ah, nice. Well done. Mm-hmm. Well played, sir. Mm-hmm. Um, can I just like quickly interject and just say that? Uh, isn't it crazy to watch that documentary and watch Yoko Ono break up the Beatles in lifetime? <laughs> uh, I'm sure it would be. However, let me say this. I said a recent documentary. I did not, in fact, say that I had watched oh, okay. documentary, only that it's been making waves and, you know, the Beatles are on top of people's mind. But I have not watched that. Documentary. Yeah, it's, it's pretty wild. I would recommend. Um, OK. OK. So anyway, going back to what we were saying, uh, the idea of love, the ethic of love, neighbor love, and the parable of the Good Samaritan. And why, why did we think this was a good topic for today? Um, well, I think that this question of neighbor love has been um, particularly uh, debated in the context of political theology, um, because politics is in many ways, uh, the, as, as, if we, as we think about it in relation to faith, Uh, is how do we love our neighbor? Um, What are the best ways to love our neighbor? Um, And the different policies and and things like that, that would, that would contribute to that um, uh, uh, well-ordered society. And ultimately what ends up happening is you, you end up debating who is your neighbor um, and what is, what does neighbor love look like? Um, And, this came out in a couple conversations, a couple debates that I saw pop up uh, online and in print um, about, you know, the ethic of love um, and what is it, what is the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan and how does it apply to politics? And so that was something we wanted to talk about uh, today. I guess to kind of just kick it off, um, Will, when you consider something like the parable of the Good Samaritan, um, what are some of the applications that you see uh, being drawn out of it? And how, are there any of those that might apply, you think, to politics in particular? Yeah, man. I remember when I took a gap year after studying, uh, well, after, after I finished high school, I took a gap year, went to a Bible college in uh, England. And one of the professors there talked about the, stu- the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he gave a fairly helpful definition of neighbor, and we'll see how it holds up throughout this chat. But uh, he said, anyone of whose needs you become aware. So uh, anyone of whose, of whose need you become aware, which I, I think is helpful in that it provides some limitations to what could seem boundless. Um, and I, you might want to add also that can be usefully and practically, um, you, can, you can provide a practical application to that person's need. 
Um, as Christians, you also believe in prayer. So you have to include that into the formulation here. You know, and I think one thing um, that we have to consider here that is such an important part of the parable of the Good Samaritan is that the man was seeking to vindicate himself. Um, and so as we get into this story, the parable of the Good Samaritan, um, we are very selfish people. We are not super interested in um, making ourselves available to the movement of the spirit uh, in whatever direction that is, whether that's, you know, you can have, uh, take, take a number of forms, but um, this, this parable is meant to draw, make us ask ourselves as well, am I seeking to justify myself in some way to some prior program that I think is just, or am I willing to listen to what scripture actually has to say and what Jesus is actually saying? Um, you know, I, I think in terms of political application, I think back to our conversation with Porter Harlow and him talking about Paul Ramsey and his interpretation of the parable of the Good Samaritan and the, its application to the just war tradition that's there. Um, I'm thinking of the, uh, well, yeah, I think, I think I would say that, that in, in terms of one application, I guess, would be the importance of just order within society to protect them. Because part of the story is that the, the good Samaritan provided a reordering to the chaos and destruction that was wrought by the bandits on the road. And I think there is a sense in which you can consider law enforcement, military, um, first responders as men and women who are a part of the, um, and probably this order, creating, keeping, and returning order to a world that inevitably moves to falling apart. Um, but that's more political. That's not as strictly thinking about how we as individual Christians ought to consider the parable of the Good Samaritan. But those are just a couple things that come to my mind off the top of my head when you bring it up. And, and what about, what are you thinking? Well, I think one of the things that gets the most confused about the parable of the Good Samaritan is uh, the attention we pay to proximity um, that the Good Samaritan actually came in to contact with this person. This person was um, uh, sort of divinely and sovereignly placed uh, in this man's way. Um, and then he was, he was, it, at least as the parable goes, he was faced with a decision, which was uh, not really to decide, is this person my neighbor? The decision was, will I be a neighbor to this person? Um, and I think that that should inform our exegesis and application of the passage. You know, one thing that's just, I think, self-evident uh, in 2021 is the way that technology has distorted our idea of proximity. Um, and so because of the internet, because of social media, um, I can be in a sort of virtual proximity with people that I would have never come into contact with ever known on this side of heaven um, in my entire life. Uh, and because of, you know, uh, the, because of the internet, you know, I can read a journalist report from the border of Ukraine and Russia, for example, or I can, um, uh, through a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend on Facebook, see, you know, that someone is raising money in order to pay for a surgery. Things that just would have been much harder to be attuned to uh, prior to uh, technology. 
Um, but I think, and while in some ways, a lot of those things are good, right? Like it's good that we know uh, about uh, events that are happening across the globe uh, that may have, you know, world significance or, and, you know, and especially in like the case of, you know, maybe the, the fundraiser, right? That's good because, you know, it's an opportunity to help out, extend a helping hand to someone that I would have never known about before. Well, think about cases of um, human trafficking, right. uh, child sex slavery, instance where these stories are um, um, revolutions uh, in the Middle East that happen because of social media. Um, look, we can also consider the fact of um, justice was able to be delivered for men like Ahmad Arbery because of uh, because of the technology and how that, that video was released. So yeah, you're right. There, there are things and um, yeah. to, to consider the positive side of things. But I also think that there, there comes with the positive, you know, as in many things, a lot of negative too. And one of those things that I see is that um, there are calls from uh, individuals within Christian circles or evangelical circles. Um, and I, to love our neighbor, but really what it is, is it becomes a sort of love of global humanity in a sort of nameless, faceless, um, uh, uh, sort of undefined way. Um, and I think that that has some problems with it because I don't think, I think then love turns into something that um, we don't really see it defined as in scripture. And what I mean by that is that love becomes this sort of inner disposition or feeling that you have um, rather than an act that you're commanded to do to unique and individual people. Um, and so what I mean by that, you know, for example, is that um, I can, if you say love your neighbor, and when you say that, you mean like my neighbor, Bob, like I, I can, I can grasp what you mean by that. Um, if Bob's uh, shutter falls down. Uh, I can go over and help him mend it. Um, if he plays his music too loud and I can hear it through the walls, I live in a townhome. Um, you know, I can have patience and um, uh, you know, I can have patience for him and, and uh, love him as I would want to be uh, loved. Uh, and I, I can think of sort of like concrete ways that I can actually do that. If you tell me to love um, uh, the uh, nation of, give me an example, Burma, the nation of Burma. I don't really know how to do that. And what I mean by that is that I don't, I don't, I don't know anybody from Burma. I don't, I don't know much about it. I guess I could research and sort of learn facts but that doesn't really help me love Burma the same way that I can love my neighbor, Bob. Is this making sense? Do you see what I'm trying to, the distinction or the contrast I'm trying to paint here? Yeah. Well, part of it is, I think what I'm hearing you say is what is it that makes something love? Is it simply an internal feeling or is it a, um, is it a conviction oriented act? towards a particular good that makes something love. And for Christians, uh, and, and this is what love is, not just for Christians, but universally truly is the glory of God. Yeah. And um, so, and, and I think with that, like what you're saying is that it's more than just 
a feeling um, that's pretty low down on, on the way that scripture describes it. Um, for example, God's love in the old Testament, uh, there are different words to describe love in the old Testament, but one of them is covenant faithfulness. And what we know that means is not just that God always feels about his people a certain way, but that he is relentless and constant and his maintaining and sustaining of the promise and covenant that he has made with his people. It is, it is an active love. And, and I, I mean, it's humbling to think about the fact that my salvation, his covenant faithfulness to me in 2021 is only around because he is actively loving me. Um, it's not just something that was set in motion and he stepped away from. Um, but then again, you know, this is something with this idea of love of neighbor. Um, I mean, it really is this question, who is my neighbor? And, uh, and then how do we love those people? Well, and I guess my next question is where are you seeing this contrast or this um, distinction or this conflict arise the most? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a couple, a couple things that come to mind. Um, and the first, I guess I can tell really with, uh, a story and it's one I, I, I tweeted about, I, I posted a big thread about it on my Twitter about this experience that, uh, wait, so you're not a Luddite. I want to make I'm sure not. Yes, that's true. I am on Twitter. Yes. You use technology. Yes. We're not we, a we typewriter before... only. What? You're not a typewriter only guy. No, before we recorded, uh, listeners, uh, Will was, uh, updating me on the state of the metaverse and where, uh, these things are going. And, uh, it made me really deeply within me, uh, call for the Butlerian jihad against technology, which if you've seen Dune, you know what I'm talking about, but well, let me just tell you while, while we want to dismiss all threats and accusations of being Luddites, a lot of our conversations on and off air sure do make us <laughs> seem like that's right. the direction we're going, <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. We'll end with a uh, this is your weekly reminder to reject the metaverse at the end, but yes. Okay. Um, you were talking about something that you had posted. On yes. The- so this, this kind of happened to us. We, we were living in an apartment building uh, in Northern Virginia uh, near the city line. And um, uh, it was, it was me, my wife and our newborn and first newborn. And uh, we lived on the second floor of this big sort of apartment complex. And most everybody in the apartment complex was, was like young professionals, a lot of people who worked and, and lived in the DC area. And uh, obviously a very sort of um, uh, uh, socially aware uh, demographic of people. Uh, like, so, so for example, there were just a lot of invitations and posters and flyers uh, that I would see, you know, pretty much uh, uh, you know, regularly inviting the complex to participate or attend some kind of march or thing like that. Um, or, uh, you know, people, just a lot of people had signs uh, in their windows for different social justice causes uh, and things like that. And uh, so, so what I gathered was, okay, a lot of my neighbors are very invested and concerned about, you know, sort of treating others well um, socially, politically, uh, and matters of justice and, and things like that, reconciliation, things like that. Um, uh, which, you know, as a neighbor, you're like, okay, great. Like that's a, that's a noble thing. 
Um, I'm happy. I'm happy for that. Uh, and then we became sort of the f- one of the only people in our apartment complex that had children. Um, and like I said, we were on the second floor, uh, and our toddler slash baby did everything that a toddler and a baby do, which is that he would walk on the floor and then he would fall and make big thumping sounds. Uh, he would drop things. Uh, he would cry and, uh, be loud and do just sort of normal baby stuff. Um, and you know, uh, at the time, like it was just very clear to all, everyone in our a complex that, you know, we, we didn't have a nanny. We didn't have somebody coming over and, and taking the kids out and watching them. And, um, you know, Kirsten was, was at home and trying to balance work and being a new mom. And, um, you know, you just, it, maybe people didn't notice it. I, I just, it's hard to, it's hard to believe it when you, when I think back about it, just how much it was prevalent in people's minds, because we got a ton of noise complaints from our neighbors all the time, not to us directly, but to management. And so what, what effectively became the message that, that I came across with, and I'm not perfect either. So I'm sure that I, I demonstrate some level of hypocrisy as well in many of my actions and, and sayings, but what, what came across was that there was this love sort of for humanity broadly, but, and caring for people who need help. And then there was this very clear demonstration of someone who needed help and nobody was there or willing to do anything about it. Um, and I think that that represents, it's, that's not really, you know, a particularly indictment on my, on my former neighbors, but what it does, I think, suggest, which is a true principle for everyone, which is that it's, it's really easy to love people you'll never come in contact with because you don't have to deal with their brokenness or like obligations or duties that they place on you. And it's like much harder to love somebody that's in your midst because you have to deal with those things. You have to deal with, uh, you know, a, a, a relative who keeps asking for money because they need help. Like, you know, you have to deal with a lot of maybe the brokenness that leads to that need. Whereas, you know, raising money for a, a cause to, you know, you know, do something somewhere else tends to be a lot easier because it's like, okay, I don't have to worry about the, the sort of obligations and asks that come with that. So I think that's, that's one big way that I see this contrast happening. And it, I, to, to just sort of wrap up the, the other thing that's I think tied to that is this, this idea of, um, uh, you know, is there anything to this, to the Augustinian notion of preferential love or an order of love where, um, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with sort of, you know, especially with in today's, uh, culture with the abundance of resources with a lot of people that they have the resources to be able to make, you know, significant contributions to, to causes or things that they'll never actually directly come in contact with. But is there something wrong with doing that and then forsaking, you know, the, the needs and things like that in, in your immediate midst, uh, of your family, of your neighbor, of your church, of your community, of even your nation? Um, and is there anything to that? And I think if you were to sort of survey the current evangelical landscape right now, I don't know if, if, uh, Christians are all that united on whether or not there is anything to this idea of preferential love. Do you think that's true for all of the hierarchy though? Uh, as in is the same would would the same number of people say you cannot love your country more than you love another country 
also would that same number apply to, Hey, you can't love your mom and dad more than um, a stranger down the road. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I get what you're saying and I think you're, you're probably right in that more people are probably divided on whether or not you can sort of, you know, there's anything to loving your countrymen over loving, you know, uh, citizens of other nations. Um, I think that's probably pretty well contested. I, I would say that almost nobody is going to argue that, you know, you should um, leverage your, your child's savings account in order to, you know, make a contribution to, you know, Habitat for Humanity or something like that, or that you should forsake healthcare for your family so that you can afford to give X amount of dollars to BLM every week. Um, I think most people would, most Christians would recognize that that was, that was a, that's a disordered uh, system of love. Um, I don't know about the parent thing anymore as, as much anymore. I, I feel like there are probably some people uh, today, at least the way they express it online or, or even in conversations, there's a, there is a sort of generational contempt uh, between uh, children and their parents right now, uh, sort of perfectly summarized in the OK Boomer uh, hashtag. But I don't know. I, you're probably right in that some things are more disordered you know, than others. And I think you're right to point out that the, the countryman thing is, is, ends up being the one that's the most sort of conflicted. Yeah, I, I see that too. And I think as Presbyterians, it's in our theology, there is a passing of the covenant promises from believing parents to the children of believing parents. And so we, we definitely acknowledge a way that God, uh, one of the ways that God extends uh his promises and continues them on. So in some ways, I think our theology and doctrine maybe provides more room for the, look, you have a different responsibility and, and to take it back to our definition earlier, a different love that you're responsible for, or a different display of love to your family than to someone that you don't know. Um, and that is, that is something that is God given and good. Uh, that doesn't mean that you we don't or can't or shouldn't, but it does mean. And this goes, you know, to the finite point of man. Um, we often in our world view finitude as a reason for tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we got this from the Germans, probably <laughs> Hegel, to really point this out. It's flown from, flowed on from him. But um, our finitude is not a bad thing. Um, it is not a bad thing to embrace it. It is a very good thing. Um, but because we are finite, we are limited in, in just about every way, which means we're limited in our time and our abilities and our opportunities to travel and get to people. So you have to make decisions. Um, and we don't like that a lot because probably to the point earlier of like love is more of a feeling than a thing you do um, to say like, okay, I got to make these practical decisions and action. It's like, oh gosh, you just got rid of the ooey, the good feelings, the ooey gooey, nice, um, warm fluffies. And now you're telling me it's about, well, look, love does feel good. That's not that it isn't there, but again, we have to consider a lot more than just how does this thing make me feel? And I do agree with you that I think the most contentious point right now is whether or not you can uh, in fact, love your country. And if you can have a preferential love for someone that is in your country versus someone that is 
not. Um, there's part of this that's unique to where we are now. There's also something else. I mean, uh, D.A. Carson makes this point in his book, Christ and Culture Revisited, where he says, basically, since Acts 2 and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, Christians have been a cross-cultural people. Uh, we have been a people of many nations, of every tribe and tongue. Lord, one day we will get there. But, you know, right now we are of, of countless tribes and tongues. And so there is a tension that exists for Christianity, and it is deeply connected to the connection of our politics as well. Um, again, it goes back, we, we've talked about this, I think, before, but render to Caesar what is Caesar and to God's what is God. So there is this this new setup that Jesus puts in place that Christianity possesses that no other faith in the world does. So it provides some tension here. Um, but I, I think uh, another thing that complicates this is that we, we have seen a, a spike um, globally of, of totalitarian dictators of a, a resurgence of strongmen on the world stage that concerns people and what that can do is in a good way can be alert to, okay, where is this trend taking place? Um, another way that it is bad is that it can make us call everything a ghost or, you know, a demon when it's not like that quote about CS Lewis is we have a danger of never seeing demons anywhere or finding a demon under every rock and stone. Mm -hmm. And that can happen with, with this issue as well. So um, yes, there is a problem with, ultra-nationalist fascism, uh, that is an issue. But because that's an issue, people can sometimes blow it up and point to everything and say, oh my gosh, that's that's Christian nationalism. It's like, Everything's Hitler. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's that internet uh, trope. It, yeah. um, so that, that leads to an area where people, probably out of a good place, want to say stuff like, Christians can't love people in their own country more than someone else in another country. And it's like, okay, Hold on a second here. Let's let's think about what you're actually saying here. And also, last point, and to to connect it, um, the idea of um, this globalist idea of like loving everybody um, and not having any preference for your own country where you're from, that's an awfully privileged, luxurious place to be sitting. Um, if you are in a small country being attacked by invaders um even if you're a pacifist you are going to show a love to your neighbor and who is that well it's your countryman who is under assault because we live in such privilege and preference here in this country we don't have to think about these things as much and i think that kind of boredom and luxury can lead us to this way of thinking yeah there's a there's a another idea right where if you say, well, I have love for my country or my love, I have love for my countrymen, that you are sort of implicitly saying that you therefore hate other uh, country, uh, other people, other people from other countries. And I just sort of reject that, that idea or, you know, what really is actually said in a more sophisticated way is that when you say that you love your countrymen, you're, you're being xenophobic. And I don't, I don't think that's true. I don't, I don't think that love is that sort of is zero sum in that kind of way where as, as in, if I have, I have so much love to give. And so if I only give it to, 
you know, if I give X amount to my countrymen, well, then I won't have any left over for anybody else. And that's a very different thing than saying, you know, you know, I have no, you to use Burma again, right? Like I don't have any animosity for the, the Burmese people. I don't wish any ill on them. I don't, you know, I don't hate them, obviously. Um, I would, you know, I pray for peace in that land, especially for my brothers and sisters in Christ, that they may live um, uh, peaceful and, and godly lives. Um, but, you know, this sort of idea that I have to qualify every time I say, you know, I love my countrymen or I love my nation, that I have to sort of qualify that with like, okay, let me go down the list and list every other, you know, sovereign nation state to make sure you know that I don't hate them. Uh, that seems to me be pretty ridiculous. Um, but I, I wanted to go back to what you were saying about the sort of the cross-cultural aspect of the church and the way it complicates things. Cause I, I feel this and I don't really have a good answer for it, but it's like, you know, it creates these tensions, right. Where it's like, okay, my brother and sister who I don't know, I've never met and, and likely will not meet on this side of glory, you know, in China or, um, you know, we had a, we had an episode about, you know, Christians that are in horribly persecuted places, you know, Christians in North Korea, right. Odds are I will never meet any of my brothers and sisters in those places. I am promised that in revelation that I will meet them and I will have an eternity, um, in glory with them. So that is a, that is a substantial bond that I share with them also because I'm united in Christ with them, which is a very real spiritual union. And that's different than like sort of my, my, you know, unbelieving neighbors who I literally live within, you know, 20 feet of because I'm in townhomes. So it's like, where do those obligations and things sort of mix, you know, mix match and cross over each other. And those can be, I think, I think that really is a tension and where we have to decide, you know, with the limited resources and the limited time that, and, and going back to the, the idea about infinite, like, what do we do with that? Um, and how do we manage it? Um, I think, you know, obviously as, as brothers and sisters united in Christ, we have access to different um, sort of tools and resources that we have, you know, we can pray for our unbelieving neighbor, um, certainly, uh, but there's a, there's a, a much sort of stronger bond that comes with praying for our brothers and sisters in other nations and then taking communion, if that makes sense. And so where, how do we sort of deal with that? I think that's a really interesting question that isn't that sort of Presbyterians, I think in particular have to deal with because we don't necessarily carry the same sort of idea of church state relations as like Anglicans do where like sort of the church is established with the nation as Presbyterians. We don't really have that in the same way. So we have to kind of deal with it differently. Well, to that point, just to bring up Presbyterians as uh, they are our, uh, tradition and employer. So (laughs) we bring up the PCA here. Um, Our PCA, our uh, governance model is very local. Uh, It has even occasionally been uh, derisively nicknamed a congregational model, as in let's not kid ourselves here. We're more congregational than we are Presbyterian. And some Presbyterian pastors will say that, and that's you know, I'm not letting any cat out of the bag there. You know, you'll see it on the interspace. But um, the way that we seek to be leaders and to love and to be involved in the community is is locally acted out. And it is 
hierarchical. And the idea is that the immediacy happens at a certain place. You have resources of gathered churches and sessions that make up a presbytery who are called to steward and be faithful to those congregants in that place and to love them first. And then that is able to build up and then hopefully have a system in place, the church that is therefore able to go forth and do its mission. But it is based upon building blocks of the local session uh, and the congregation that um, votes in, calls a pastor to them. And so I would say that our very church government itself believes in the, at least in our acts. And so this is where we have to think about the connection with acting and loving. Um, um, at least in our acts that um, they, they, they take a primacy to the local and immediate over the national. Um, and, and as Presbyterians too, we don't just believe that arbitrarily. We think that that's how God has set things up to run. Now, again, we're not saying that the church is the state, only that I'm saying that there's probably a prudential lesson here that can be gleaned to the way to utilize and enact our resources um, for, the, for the greatness of God's glory. Um, and I think just a big point to be clear, like, we, I, I don't think it's anything wrong for someone to love their country where they're from um, and to uh, be proud of it, to own its faults. That's part of loving something is to own its faults and shortcomings, but to think it's the greatest place on earth. But there, there is no, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that. Uh, it can go bad. Yes. But um, it is not wrong in and of itself. Yeah. I, I totally agree. I, I tend to see sort of the idea of loving your nation loving your country um, as sort of hand in hand with the commandment to honor your father and mother, uh, mostly because at least in biblical terms, nations are often considered uh, uh, as sort of allegations of, of tribes and families. And so your nation sort of is a representation of, of at least a kind of um, filial love uh, that you would for, you know, close relatives or friends and um, um to sort of spurn the sort of civic trust that's been handed down um, is, a, is a way I think we can uh, dishonor our fathers and our mothers who have come before us. Um, and I think the last thing I would say just kind of really broadly about this whole idea of neighbor love uh, is, is I tend to, I, I like that framing um, and I got it from John Frame uh, of that uh, notion that, you know, we don't want to keep being like the guy who asked Jesus that sort of, brought about this parable. Um, we don't want to be the guy that's just trying to figure out the answer to the initial question, who is my neighbor? Um, I think we want to, I think we want to take it in the direction that Jesus leads us, which is the question, will you be a neighbor? Because ultimately um, we serve a sovereign God who has called us into particular places um, in particular contexts. Um, and he has, he has brought people into our way. Um, and you know, it doesn't matter if they look different than us, speak different than us, um, believe different things than us. You know, uh, if we see a need, as going back to what your professor said, if we see a need, are we going to be willing to meet it uh, and help? And I think that that really um, should frame a lot of these conversations. Uh, I, I'm not as interested in sort of the sitting down and having, you know, esoteric questions about, you know, you know, is love... Uh, as the great theologian Ben Boston said, is it more than a feeling? 
uh, or not? Or, you know, can you have love for, you know, this person overseas, you know, across the, on the other side of the world as you can, I, I'm not as interested in that, those kind of conversations as I am, you know, the, you know, there's a need in your midst. Will you be a neighbor and love that person regardless of, you know, uh, what they believe, who the, what they look like, or, or any differences like that. And I think that tends to be far more, you know, grounded in the passage and also just inherently more practical uh, as Christians who are called to to do this thing. So, yeah, a great way to end. Just echo that. And I think it's, it's a humbling challenge also though, because it is, if love is action, it, it's really hard. It's more than just words. Why does, why does James say, you know, someone comes to you in need of a, you know, someone comes to you who's in need and you say, be warm, be filled. What good is that? What has that done for anything? And I think my sinful heart, uh, but for the grace of God, will will so frequently go to the, Hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. Be warm, be filled. I hope you, I hope it gets better for you when there is something that can be done and a willingness. And man, the, the truth is the Christian life is a call to live sacrificially. Um, and I, I it's hard, you know, Christmas is a great time of gift giving, but it's also the time where the greatest sacrifice in human history was inaugurated at the incarnation mm-hmm. and begun. So um, Jesus, Jesus surrendered a lot when he came to earth and mm-hmm. um, became a man. So yeah, this is a time of, of great rejoicing in the sacrifice and our call to sacrifice as well. But I'm glad you wanted to bring up this conversation. Yeah, I think it's a really important one. I think we'll, it's going to be one that continues to go on and um, I think has a lot of relevance for people who work in politics. I'm, I'm interested uh, as we uh, move into the new year and Ministry of State is, is hosting more Bible studies and devotionals, and we're going to be uh, just spending um, a lot of time with people who work in government, uh, the way that they see this passage applying to their context, their, their vocations and their callings. So um, as always... Uh, we are so thankful that uh, you decided to tune in to the show. As always, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Artie Hassler. Will is at Stockdale Will. Make sure to check out Ministry of State at ministryofstate.org. Will, anything you need to plug? No. Well, no. I don't. I don't know if I need to plug anything. I am excited. We're. Uh, um, I'm excited for 2022, basically, and our Bible studies, devotionals, and hopefully, um, doing a little more uh, intensive for faith and work and government. Yeah, it's going to be a good year. We're really excited about it. Um, We'll be talking more about it at the Christmas party uh, if you get a chance to come. Uh, But uh, you can also uh, find out more on our website. And with that, we'll see you guys again next week.